0: Down the street from us. Turn in your copy of God's Word to Romans chapter eight. It's where we find ourselves again this evening, and will for many Sunday evenings, Lord willing, for the next several months. But turn there, Romans chapter eight. We pick it up in verse nine, and I'll read here to verse eleven. Our text for tonight: Romans eight, nine to eleven says this, however, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. But it is the spirit of him, but if, rather, the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Yesterday was Aaron and I's seventh anniversary. And young couples often ask us, other single people maybe, those that uh, we've had the privilege of knowing. But they, I, I get asked this and Aaron gets asked this, but they're, how do you know she was the one? How did you know that, you know, when we were dating? and We asked it even of our, ourselves when we were, you know, seven, eight years ago. How do you know when you found the one? How do, you, how do you know that? And we heard the answer often, and maybe you've heard this answer as well. You just know. You ever heard that before? How do you know if she's the one? And someone will say, you just know. You just know. The best advice I ever got is Pastor... A pastor asked me, well, will she make a godly wife? Will she make a godly mother? Does she make a great ministry partner? And I said, check, check, check. So, away we went. (laughs) But have you heard that? you, You just know as if it's some sort of subjective feeling that just tips you off, that an alert goes off. You just know there's this internal affirmation. There's no checklist, no rational thought, no compatibility testing, no similar interest. You just know deep down that this is the one. And in Aaron and I's case, we are dating and engagement process was very quick. We only dated about five months and were engaged five months. And then we got married. The very first time I took her out for coffee a year later was we were celebrating that one year coffee date on our honeymoon. <laughs> And so we got, we got married pretty quickly. We'd known each other for quite a while. But even in that quickness, you, some might ask, well, how did you know? And, well, I just knew. I just knew. Well, there's, there's obviously much more than that. There was confirmation from family, from our friends. We were on the same page theologically. We were on the same page in our life direction. We were both ministry-minded. She was willing to live in the middle of nowhere. On top of all the things of physical attraction and similar interests and things, but there was more than I just knew. And that has been really confirmed over the last seven years. But sometimes the approach to the Christian faith is the same, is it not? How do you know that I'm a Christian? I just know. You may ask of other somebody, somebody else, maybe that you're trying to witness to. And you say, how do you know if you're a Christian? They say, well, you just know. I have these good feelings about Jesus. You know, Jesus is just all right with me type of saying. they might say, well, I, I grew up in the church. I grew up in Sunday school. But I just know. But surely there's something more to this, isn't there? Surely there's something more tangible, something more clear to answer this question How do I know if I'm a Christian? And that's the purpose of tonight's text. The text that I just read is to answer this question. Am I really a Christian? It's meant to encourage the believer and assure believers of their salvation. Remember, this passage comes on the heels of Romans 7 in the battle, the struggle of the believer back and forth who still remains in this body. But even in more the immediate context, as we saw last week, this comes right after verses 5 to 8. Obviously, because we're in verse 9. But in the, but in the argument here of the, the characteristics of the person who is in the flesh... The person who is hostile to God, who's in rebellion to the law and does not and cannot please God. And so in verse 9 here is a transition, is a contrast here, meant to encourage the believer. Look how he begins in verse 9 here. He just he begins by saying, however, you, addressing the readers here, these Roman Christians, these Jews and Gentiles in the Roman church coming from various backgrounds who are now united in this faith and who are going to see are united by the possession of the Holy Spirit. And so just as, as we begin this message, as we begin here looking at this text, I want you to know that this is meant for your encouragement. This is meant, if you are a believer tonight, to assure you of your salvation. Because you are not like the man in the Flesh, But as we look here at where this, these verses come in, there's a greater context also to this question. And Paul's really been answering the question, am I really a Christian, since, well, all throughout here in Romans, but particularly beginning in chapter 5. And just for your review here, in answer to this question, am I really a, a Christian... As Paul has taught us four things up until this point. At the very beginning of chapter 5, he's taught us that you, a Christian is someone who is convicted by their sin. It's someone who's convicted of our own sin. That you know that you are a sinner, that you were once an enemy of God. And he went to great lengths to bestow his love and to forgive and to show grace to us. But that begins by being convicted of feeling guilt and shame in regards to the wrong that you have done, and particularly the wrong that has offended God. If you've been convicted by your sin, well, then that's the, really the first step here. He continues on, and at the end of chapter 5, really beginning, verses 12, and to the end of the chapter, is that not only are you convicted by your sin, but you understand justification. And you understand the sin that has been imputed to us through Adam, being born into this world, coming in in flesh, of being represented by Adam, that we have this imputed sin in all all of us. And yet that our sin, because of what Christ has been taken on by Him, and Christ's righteousness, because of His perfect obedience to the law, has been imputed or given over to us. That it's been credited to our account. And that we understand this justification. We understand that we have been declared righteous by God. If you understand that and know that, well, this is a sign for us that you may be a Christian. Not only are you convicted by your sin, but that you understand justification. But then uh, number three here in chapter six is that you reflect Christ in your actions. That first you consider yourself dead to sin and alive unto God in Christ Jesus. That you begin in your mind that you understand this is your position. You understand that sin is no longer your master. That it has no power or dominion over you. You are dead to it and you have been made alive unto God. And so then your life no longer reflects a dead man. No longer reflects a man who is controlled by sin. But now reflects Christ. And the pattern of your life, your daily decisions, your daily actions reflect that which is of your master. You've said, notice in and yes to righteousness. If that is true, if that is a reflection of your life, then you're probably a Christian. But it doesn't really stop there. Another marker that he gives us in chapter 7 is that you desire to do what is holy, righteous, and good, namely the law that you desire to do these things, even in the battle, even though we as human beings remain of flesh, we are not in the flesh, controlled by the flesh, even though we remain in these bodies that have been corrupted, even though we remain in these, that sin remains in these bodies, and that sin uses the law to aggravate us, cause us to do more sin, but our overall desire of our life, is one of doing what is holy, doing what is righteous, and doing what is good and pleasing to God. And so Paul's been answering this question, am I a Christian, all throughout this here, of showing us these, the fruit of our life in our sanctification, in our understanding, in the manner of how we live our life. But Paul also is going to give us here tonight, in the text we just read, a fifth point here in answer to this question And that is that you possess the Holy Spirit. That the Holy Spirit dwells in us. And this, and he's going to show us that when we are possessed by the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit then does these three great works. There's three great works. Among many, this isn't all of what the Holy Spirit does, but these three great works here that are accomplished in the believer's life. Three great works here. And it begins... In the first part of verse 9. We've already looked here, however you, addressing the believer, this contrast to being in the flesh. And now he says, however you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. And so here we go. This is, remember here, just as review that he is saying, you, believer, are not in the flesh, not under the control of the flesh, even though you may be of flesh. And that key distinction that we looked at from chapter 7, all of us are of flesh, we're fleshly because we have human bodies, but we are not in the flesh, meaning that we are controlled by it. But we are in the control of, under the dominion of, under the influence of, under the mastery of, of the Holy Spirit, of God himself. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you, takes residence in you, makes his abode in you, takes his, his, finds his home in you. So if the Spirit of God dwells in you, say it a simple way, if the Spirit dwells in you, then you are in the Spirit. If the Holy Spirit has possessed you, lives in you, and you would be what is categorized as in the spirit, under his control, under his mastery. Turn over to 1 Corinthians 6. I want us to see something here. We're going to look at several texts here in the next few moments. So we can get a bigger picture of what Paul means here. And so in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19, he refers to this also. He says, or do you not know that your body... Is a temple of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own. And this great uh, final charge that you've probably heard. For you have been bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body. And so here, what he's, what, uh, what he's talking about, is, what Paul is teaching us, is that the Holy Spirit now takes uh, residence in us. That you are a temple now of God himself. We don't have to go to the temple in the Holy of Holies where God was said to reside, but now he resides in us as believers. And what an encouraging reality for us as believers, isn't it? That here God himself dwells in us by his spirit. This is This is incredible. This is great for us to know. What a, what, a, what a great encouragement to these Roman believers here. What a great encouragement to us who are in the battle of this. That God himself dwells in us and therefore we are under his sway. We are under his control. We are under his dominion. And so this leads us really to a, a great question now as we think about this. Well, am I really a, quish, a Christian? But we also now, this, this, how, how do I know if the Spirit dwells in me? Isn't that a legitimate question? Shouldn't we ask this question? Well, how do I know if, if the Spirit, can, can I just go to the heart doctor and he open it up? And whoa, we got a nice little you know, bungalow going on in there. No, it's, it's not like that. So how do we know if the Spirit dwells in us? Well, I think the scripture teaches three Key things that we can understand. Three things to answer this question. One, it's based on our confession. It's based on our confession. Turn back over to 1 Corinthians 12. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 3. If you want to just listen to these, that's okay as well. But we'll turn there. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 3. In this great passage, this great chapter on spiritual gifts. He says, Therefore I make known to you that no one speaking... By the Spirit of God, says Jesus is accursed. and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. And so, if you want to know who, if if you are controlled by the Holy Spirit, if you want to know if the Spirit is dwelled in you, well, for the first key, the first the the. Uh, The first evidence of that is one based on your confession. Do I speak that Jesus is Lord? Have I confessed that with my mouth and said Jesus is Lord? Because only somebody under the influence of the Spirit of God, with the Spirit of God in Him, can even say that. And nobody with the Spirit can curse Jesus. And so if you've cursed God, you know, in a moment of of trial or something, and you've cursed Him and shook your fist at Him, well, then the Spirit of God does not dwell in you. And so the evidence of this, the fruit, is if the Spirit dwells in you, is first based on our confession. But it's also based on the fruit of our life. It's also based on the fruit of our life, the deeds of, of our life. Turn over to Matthew chapter 7. Probably a familiar story. At the, near the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus tells this great story about a tree and its fruit. Matthew 7, 15 to 20. And Jesus warns here, he says, Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? So every tree, good tree, bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. And so what are the fruits of your life? And so we, I, I take you to this teaching of Jesus because on the heels of this, then it helps our understanding of Galatians 5. And that very familiar passage with that uh, we know of the flesh versus the spirit. Galatians 5, beginning in verse 16. I'll just read it for you. Because Paul says, "...but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the deeds or the fruits of the flesh are evident." Which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness carousing and things like these of which i forewarn you just as i have forewarned you that you who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of god and so if those are the fruits of your life the spirit is not in you that is a characteristic of somebody who is in the flesh but verse 22 but the fruit of the spirit so the spirit being in you, here's the fruit. Here's the good tree. The spirit being in you, this is the type of fruit that it bears. is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the spirit, let us also walk by the spirit. How do you know if the Spirit dwells in you? First, by your confession, confessing Jesus as Lord, and then the fruits of the Spirit being in you. But it also is, thirdly, I think we can answer this question, if the Spirit dwells in us, is that it's shown by our perseverance. By our perseverance. When we are faced with trials of many kinds, when we come under fire for our faith, Or when we just, things don't go our way? Do we turn our back on the Lord, wanting control of our own life? Or do we humbly bow in submission to the Lord? Persevering through the faith. We know this, a great example, is the parable of the soils, right? Told in Luke 8, other gospels, the word of God is cast among the soils. There's some when the sun comes up. Or the thorns and the thistles come and it chokes it out. They don't persevere through the trials, through the heat of life. Turn over to 1 Peter chapter 4. I'll steal a little bit of Chris's thunder when he gets to this passage in several weeks. 1 Peter chapter 4, 12 to 14. Peter very encouragingly, very lovingly shepherds these people that he is writing to, saying, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ... You are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Wow. That's powerful stuff. In the midst of being reviled for your faith, in the midst of being persecuted, in the midst of the fiery ordeal, if you can rejoice in the midst of that, and this isn't some happy hallelujah celebration dance necessarily. But this is, if you are able to give thanks to God, if you are able to rejoice in the midst of these things, then the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. That's powerful stuff. This is how we know. If, this is, if you examine your own life, does the spirit dwell in me? Ask yourself, have I confessed that Jesus is Lord? Do the fruits of my life match up with the second list in Galatians 5, not with the list of the flesh? And am I persevering through hard times, trusting the Lord, submitting to His will in my life? And so this first work here, just bringing us back here, if, the, if, you, are, if you are possessed by the Holy Spirit, as an answer to this question, am I really a Christian? Well, this first work of God dwelling in us by His Spirit is a great and encouraging gift to the believer. He dwells in us. God himself comes and dwells in us. But it doesn't stop here because the second great work now, this second great work in the, in the second half of verse 9, go back to Romans 8 now, is this, that he seals us. That the Holy Spirit seals those who would belong to Christ. Look at this. He says, but if anyone does not have the spirit of, God, of Christ, he does not belong to him. But if no spirit of Christ. And so it's a, it's a negative truth stated or a positive thing stated in a negative way. But before we really get into this belonging part, I want us to notice here this Trinitarian theology of the indwelling Holy Spirit. Because look at what he says at the first half here. But it, the very first, in, in uh, the first half of verse 9, he says, But the Spirit, and then keep looking, he says, the Spirit of God. And then he says, but if the Spirit of Christ. And let's just keep looking on. Just as, let's just look through our verses here. Who all dwells in us? Look at the first part of verse 10. If Christ is in you. Hold on, we just said that the spirit of, and then the spirit of God, now the spirit of Christ, and now it's Christ. And then at the end of of chapter 10, yet the spirit is life. If you have the NASB, it's probably lowercase s, and we'll get to that. But I I I just want to say that I think that's referring to the Holy Spirit. I'll tell you why in a minute. But the spirit, and then verse 11, first half, there the spirit of him... Referring to the Father who raised Jesus from the dead, and he who raised Christ Jesus. And then at the end of verse 11 again, to your mortal bodies through his spirit. His spirit. So do you notice this? Seven times the indwelling presence of the deity is referred to in these three verses. Now, that's, I, don't, I don't know if there's an, another uh, section of Scripture that is that condensed in reference to the Holy Spirit who particularly indwells us here. And in, in, in using all this vast language, we have the Spirit, Spirit of God, Spirit of Christ, Christ, Spirit, Spirit of Him, and then Spirit again, His Spirit. And this really shows us here that the, the, the working of the Trinity, that they are distinguishable but not inseparable. That they are one and the same but with different roles and different responsibilities. They're unified but diverse. And there's a great quote from from a a book that Wayne Grudem has uh, written. And he's written many of these. But Isaiah, Zip and I, we're going through uh, what I'll call baby Grudem. You know, you have the big daddy Grudem systematic theology that's like 1,500 pages. And then he has an 800 page book called Bible Doctrine. And then he's got like a... Oh, it's probably, what, 100 pages or so, Isaiah? That's 20 beliefs every Christian should know. And so it takes all 1,500 pages and shrinks it right down. And it's very helpful and a very great book. And it walks through these key doctrines of the faith. And so I would recommend it uh, to you. It's, it's very easy, very, uh, very uh, good reference to go through. And it just so happens that this past Tuesday, Isaiah and I were reading the chapter on the Trinity. And so I thought I would just read this here, his great summary. How can you summarize all of the Holy Trinity that really blows our comprehension? But he does a good job here. And so Grudem says this, in both creation and redemption, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit all had distinct roles. It was the Father who directed and sent both the Son and the Spirit. And it was the Son who, along with the Father, sent the Spirit. The Son was obedient to the Father, and the Spirit was obedient to both the Father and the Son. And while both the Son and the Spirit have and continue to carry out their roles in equal deity with the Father, they do so in submission to the Father." And so they're all one, equal, all possess the divine attributes. And yet even within that, even within the harmony and the unity of the Holy, of the Holy Trinity, there is even a, a hierarchy and a submitting, a submitting of one to the other. Not diminishing one over the other, but just simply in regards to their relationship, in regards to their function and roles and responsibilities. He goes on, he says, These different functions and roles are simply the outworking of the eternal relationship between the Father, Son, and Spirit. They do not diminish the deity, attributes, or essential nature of the Father, Son, or Spirit. The distinction is simply in the ways they relate to each other and to the creation, i.e., us, and creation as a whole. This is far different from our own experience where every person is a different being as well. But somehow God's being is so different from ours that it can be both undivided and can unfold itself into interpersonal relationships among three distinct persons. And this is far different from anything we have ever experienced, will experience, or can fully understand. So I appreciate that last caveat there that, well, we still can't even understand it. We see a little bit of a picture in it in marriage, you know, where two people come one flesh but yet we're distinct, and so we're, we're still two separate people, so that even itself can't fully encapture all that is the Trinity here. But I just bring that to your attention to see this richness, the sweetness of this theology here, of even the Holy Spirit who indwells in us is referred to and is in conjunction with the working of the entire Trinity. But here in regards to the Holy Spirit's sealing, This is where it gets really sweet, really encouraging. Because he says, he does not belong to him. If anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. And so like I said, this is a negative way to communicate a positive reality. All who belong to Christ, all who've been chosen by God, called into the fold, gathered by the shepherd, enslaved by the master, they have the spirit in them. Again, simply stated, all Christians have the Holy Spirit all the time in them. We all do the Holy Spirit. We belong to Christ. And this is unlike the Old Testament. This is unlike the time of of the Old Covenant, where the Spirit would come and go, would empower certain people, believers and even sometimes unbelievers, to do a particular work of God for a specific situation. But God didn't dwell in His chosen people of that time. This is a New Covenant blessing. Talked about in Ezekiel thirty six, said, "I will give you Holy Spirit." So this is this is a different, this is a new, profound reality. What a sweet and encouraging truth to these Roman Christians that Paul is writing to—that the Holy Spirit of God lives in you, Jew and Gentile. What an encouraging reality for us that He, that the that the Spirit of God lives in us, all who belong to Christ, and the Holy Spirit is sealing that. This is different, this, this sealing that he does, this, this belonging to Christ is different than being filled by the Spirit. It's different than walking in the Spirit. Those are, those are walking in the Spirit. It, as we saw from, from Galatians 5, all of us who are in the Spirit are being led by the Spirit. All of us have the Holy Spirit and then we need to walk in light of that. We need to walk in light of where we stand and who lives in us. Build for certain things and, and whatnot. But all of us have the Holy Spirit. We belong to Christ. And really, these, this, this verse here really squashes all the, the uh, baptism of the Holy Spirit garbage that is out there. Because here he's saying that all who belong to Christ, all who are a true, genuine, believing Christian have the Holy Spirit. If you don't, you don't belong to him. And so if you find yourself apart from the Holy Spirit not residing in you, well, then that is a stark warning. The sirens are going off because here what the Romans 8, 9 is teaching us is that you do not belong to Christ. And that is the worst reality that you could ever find yourself in, not belonging to Christ. And so at the moment of regeneration, all Christians since Pentecost have received the Holy Spirit. And why Jesus has said, it is better that I go away. So Christians, all Christians belong to Christ. Their new master and the Holy Spirit seals this reality. It can never be reversed. It can never be revoked. And it can never be rescinded. Beloved, if you belong to Christ, you have the Holy Spirit. And this has been sealed for you. It can't be taken away. And this will ultimately, this sealing work will be proven when this final work from verses 10 and 11 This final work of the Holy Spirit happens because not only does he dwell us and dwell us, not only does he seal us, but he also resurrects us. And verse 10 here is where it gets a little bit tricky because verse 10, I think, is, is Paul is using some shorthand to refer back to some truths and some things that he has already taught us in great detail in chapters 5, 6, and 7. And so what do you states again here? If Christ is in you, okay, there's the truth. There's the reality. Even though the body is dead because of sin. And so we've already seen this. We've already established this. Our body, our flesh here that we find ourselves, it is dead. It is heading towards death, okay, because of sin. Because of the sin that has corrupted these bodies that we find ourselves in, they're heading towards destruction. They're corrupted. They're going to die. The outer man is decaying. Because of that sin that remains. It's not our master anymore. It's not reigning over us, but it does remain in these bodies. Yet, yet, the spirit, capital S, is life. Because of righteousness, and so the NASB, if you have that there in front of us, is a, is more of an interpretive translation. But I would say it's not the best. A better translation, grammatically speaking, is Spirit capital S is life. But they've translated this word Zoe as alive, which it never occurs that way. It shouldn't be. Um, even later in verse eleven, he says well, the, that Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus from the dead will give also give life. It's the same word there. Okay, and so the Holy Spirit is life. The Spirit is life. So our body's been dead, contrasted with the Spirit, the Holy Spirit is life because of righteousness. And now track with me here why, why I think this is the better case and why uh, most uh, scholars and commentators would even uh, agree with this here. That they would say that this, the body is dead. We've already established this. But then he's also referring us back to the Holy Spirit living in us. is taking us to uh, eternal life because of righteousness. Now is this the righteousness that you and I earn or do based on our good deeds? No. Our righteousness, this is an imputed, a foreign righteousness. It's the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus that's been given to us. And so the Holy Spirit in us is life, giving us life here because of righteousness. Because of the the same benefit that applied justification to our lives is also the same one that is going to glorify, that will work itself out in glorification at the resurrection of our bodies. Turn over to uh, chapter 5, verse 21. Romans 5, 21. You'll see this here as Paul kind of sums this up because as I said, this verse here is shorthand for what he's already elaborated on in great depth, which is why we, we take this, this translation here. And so he says, uh, chapter 5, verse 21, he says, so that as sin reigned in death, okay, so we know this, sin, death, coming, even so grace would reign through righteousness, what? To eternal life through Jesus Christ. Our Lord, And so this same concept, our bodies are dead because of sin, though the Spirit is giving us life. This is a part of the Spirit's work to resurrect us to eternal life through the righteousness that was won in Christ Jesus. And so what this means here, what this means, verse 10, what this means is if the Spirit dwells in you, okay, that truth, yes, the body is dying because of sin, but... The Spirit at work is bringing life, both that present liveliness to do what is right now, but also the eternal life because of what Christ has won for us in his perfect righteousness. The Spirit lives in you that 's what we have to look forward to, and he takes this a step further here 's why this all makes sense, because in verse eleven here this is what he 's talking about this he 's taking it this this step further. he again states at the very beginning that the spirit dwells in you, but if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you and he, you might have gotten this picture here that Paul has repeated this over and over and over and over, that the Spirit dwells in you. The Spirit dwells in you. If the Spirit of Christ Jesus dwells in you, if the Spirit dwells in you, if the Spirit of Him who dwells in you, it's repeated over and over. We saw it seven times already. And it really, if it's, as Bible students, what do we see? When something is repeated over and over, it shows that it's really important, right? This, beloved, is a fundamental tenet of our faith, that the Holy Spirit indwells us That we are a temple of him. And so don't forget it. This is a fundamental to our faith and our life. How we live our life. That the spirit of God dwells in us. And so he says, he restates it. But he says then here, that if the spirit dwells in you, it was that Holy Spirit who raised Christ Jesus... From the dead, after three days dead in the tomb, and gave him what? His new, resurrected, glorified body brought him to life. And here's the great thing. He's going to do the same thing for you and I. Isn't that great? Here the Holy Spirit who indwells in us, who sealed us, our belonging to Christ Jesus, we have this future hope of glory that he's going to do the same for us. That we will receive these bodies. It's looking ahead. And unless the Lord raptures us, all of us here are going to be stone cold dead, but that Spirit who is going to come and He's going to resurrect the dead in Christ first and give life to these mortal bodies. What a incredible truth. What a sweet, encouraging reality that we have to look forward to by the Holy Spirit who lives in us. That same spirit who raised Christ from the dead. And so I would just encourage you, believer tonight, who has declining health, who has the aches and pains of getting older. Maybe cancer is eating away at you, organs are failing. Maybe just sitting up is hard to do. Maybe there's things going on in your mind, in your body. Maybe you've been in a wheelchair for decades. Be patient, be encouraged. Because as a believer, the Holy Spirit works in you. And that Holy Spirit who's working out your sanctification, who is conforming you to Christ, that has sealed you for eternity, will one day resurrect you, and all those things will be gone. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. So the Holy Spirit, we've seen from this, He indwells us, He seals us, and He's going to resurrect us. So now I want to just bring us back in closing to this original question. Am I really a Christian? Because this is what he wants us to to deal with tonight. However, you, believer, does the Holy Spirit live in you? Do those three things that we looked at earlier, are they true of your life? So I'd call us tonight to examine your heart. In regards to this question. It's similar to the the children's Sunday school. I was just reflecting on this in my preparation this afternoon. I taught the elementary school kids today. Took a break from Proverbs and went to the wilds of the children's building. And we're in Acts 8. The story of Philip. Going to the Samaritan people who received the Holy Spirit. Do we have a real faith like them? Who then the apostles came? Philip came. He was persecuted and scattered uh, because of Saul's persecution. And then they went into the area, the region of Samaria, and began to preach the gospel, even at the persecution. And people began to believe. And so Peter and John, the apostles, had to come to usher in here this this uh, Pentecost amongst the Samaritans and 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 the Samarians. and 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 uh, the Holy Spirit has come. So do you have a real faith like them, or the fake faith like? Simon, the magician, who's known for all these great uh, the, his magic tricks, and who even professed to be a Christian, who who was even baptized, but then when the apostles come, he asked, "Well, what do I got to pay to get this?" Showing the fruit, showing, exposing him. Just because he professed faith and was even baptized, doesn't mean that he was really a Christian. Showed that he didn't have the spirit. So we were called to examine our hearts. Examine your heart. And secondly, we would call you to examine your fruit. Compare your thoughts, your words, your actions to those lists that are in Galatians 5. Compare your thoughts, your words, your actions towards your spouse. Just take stock of them. Examine them towards your kids, with your co workers. Yes, your body is dead. Yes, sin remains. Yes, there will still be a battle with this sin. But is the inner man being renewed day by day and the overall pattern of your life is one of walking in the Spirit? Because those who have the Spirit walk in the Spirit. And so this exam here, as you answer this question, is graded on a simple yes or no. It's like the junior high uh, uh, asking to, to be my boyfriend or girlfriend. Circle yes or circle no. It's not an A, B, C, D, or F test. Because all would fail that test apart from Christ. Either you have his spirit or you don't. If yes, you belong to him. If you belong to him, you have his spirit. And if no, you don't belong to him. If you don't belong to him, you don't have your, his spirit. So what is it for you? You're Christian, does the Spirit live in you? That's the question of the hour. Please pray with me. Father in heaven, we thank you for texts like this. That for us who believe, us who belong to Christ are so encouraging. To know that we have you residing, making your abode in us. What an encouragement and sweet reality. Help us to live that out more, God. Help us to to walk in the Spirit that the deeds of our life would reflect that great reality of our life. And for those that are maybe here tonight listening, watching this, that are apart from you, that don't have your Spirit, oh God, do the work that only you can do of changing our hearts. We thank you for the Holy Spirit, who is our counselor, who is our comforter, who is our keeper, who is our teacher, who recalls to mind the things of your word. Thank you for this this great reality. We pray these things in Christ's name, the one to whom we belong. Amen.